0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Aaron Mack. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 1st. On today's show, we'll talk to Danielle Citron, a law professor at Boston University who just won the MacArthur Genius Award for her work on cyber harassment. Citroen has written extensively on cyber stalking, online mobs, and revenge porn. I'll ask her about why she sees online harassment as a civil rights issue and how laws can catch up to address the problem. After the interview, my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. A warning to our listeners. In this conversation, we talk about online sexual harassment. It includes graphic descriptions of sexually violent threats. Last week, the MacArthur Foundation announced its 2019 class of fellows. Also known as the MacArthur Genius Award, the fellowship recognizes those who have shown extraordinary originality and dedication in their creative pursuits. Each fellow receives $625,000 as an investment in their work. Danielle Citron, a law professor at Boston University, was named as one of the 26 fellows for her research on cyber harassment. Citrin has studied issues like online stalking, mobs, and revenge porn for more than a decade. She was in fact one of the first scholars to study these phenomena and raise awareness about their harms. Lawmakers, Facebook, and Twitter have sought her advice on how to handle the epidemic. More recently, she has done research on the dangers of deepfakes. Citrin has also written multiple times for Slate and is the author of the 2014 book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. So I know you must have told this story many times already, but what was your reaction to receiving the fellowship?
2: So I have to say, they got me on the phone by saying that I was going to be talking about a nominee. You don't ever contemplate it for yourself. That's absurd. So I was thinking of these two friends of mine, like who I would think they're going to call me about. and. <laughs> It was John Palfrey, who's the president of the MacArthur Foundation. Now, I, at first, I thought, so my friends Dan and Neil kind of punk me all the time. And at first, because I've been writing about deep fakes, audio, and I thought, is this really John Palfrey? I think I must have said, oh my golly, like a hundred times. And. <laughs> I don't remember much, but I do remember I was really skeptical of John Palfrey. Like, (laughs) it's really John Palfrey.
0: Yeah. So what do you plan on doing with the grant, do you think?
2: So I know what I'm going to do with the grant. It couldn't be more auspicious timing. So I was just been on the cusp of thinking through my next book, which is going to be about sexual privacy. And so I've done some preliminary work. I had a piece where I published in the Yale Law Journal about kind of theorizing what is this foundational value? why is it important? Why is it especially important vis-a-vis other kinds of privacy? Why does it deserve special protection? What do I mean by it? And so, I'm so I've am so i been doing some interviewing of victims of invasions of sexual privacy. And so I was just gearing up to write the second part of this, uh, the sort of what are corporate obligations vis-a-vis our intimate data. So I'm working on that for a law review article right now. And for a talk that I'm giving at William and Mary Law School, the Wyeth Lecture. So I've been so geared up to think this summer I was going to start writing the book.
0: So a lot of the press coverage uh, notes that you were one of the first scholars to recognize online harassment as like a pressing issue. So when would you say this kind of first came on your radar?
2: You know, when I first started writing about online harassment and sort of describing it as the new frontier for civil rights, people were like, you're crazy. (laughs) And I worked really hard to convince people of that. And some, aspects of cyber harassment involve invasions of sexual privacy. So the posting of someone's nude photos without their consent, hacking into their computers and stealing their intimate conversations or intimate communications, you know, cyber stalking apps. But I've been writing effectively about sexual privacy without explaining why it's a foundational value, how it's different from other aspects of privacy, why it deserves special protection. So You know, writing about cyber stalking apps is writing about sexual privacy because it's invading your most intimate of communications, your conversations with your intimates on your cell phone, the photos that you take, you know, it's in the bedroom with you, your cell phone. And when a cyber stalker has the app and puts it on your phone, they can hear you. They turn on the microphone and can hear what's going on in your bedroom and your bathroom. You know, throughout, I've been sort of thinking about ways in which technologies document and use information and and share information about our intimate lives without explicitly saying so. So I feel like a lot of that work has been building toward it. Or or two summers ago, I started thinking about sex torsion and writing about deepfake sex videos. To me, it was all about sexual privacy, but I hadn't yet articulated it in that way. So when Bobby Chesney and I first started, this is in late 2017, started writing about deepfakes together. To me, that was about an invasion of sexual privacy because it starts with the inserting of faces, you know, female celebrities' faces into porn. And so Mm. I thought that I want to write and theorize sexual privacy. I want to explain why it's so important. I want to create a concept and map it out and then talk about how individuals invade each other's sexual privacy, how companies are doing it, how government is doing it. You know, insisting that trans individuals, you know, use certain bathrooms is about exposing and shaming you for your gender identity. And so I knew that was my next, you know, I feel like I was doing it without saying so explicitly. And now I get to do it in a book.
0: When you, you just mentioned that when you first started writing on cyber harassment, there was a lot of skepticism around it. Where do you think that was coming from?
2: You know, definitely social attitudes. I heard it from law enforcement and victims heard it from law enforcement. Heard it from colleagues and uh, scholars. When I presented my really early work in 2008 on cyber civil rights, the response was, come on, Danielle, it's the internet. If you do anything like regulate online speech, you're going to break the internet. And we must not touch the internet. <laughs> it was like the you know, skepticism from so many quarters and social attitudes, both about our relationship to network tools, about the role that the internet played in our lives. We almost like all caps, the internet is sort of how I imagine people were talking about it, as if it was only a public square. Without a meaningful recognition, it's how you make a living. You know, how journalists, you gotta be on Twitter if you wanna make a living. I'm telling this to you. So, you know, you would know better, than no doubt. But, you know, network tools are how we, There, it's our CV. And so the idea that it was just one thing, that it was just ones and zeros, that it was just speech and thou shalt not touch it, was like a crucial part of the how, you know the kinds of resistance I faced from even wonderful scholars and colleagues. And then you go to law enforcement, and because it's so often a story about women and non-whites and and you know LGBTQ folks, the response was, you're just seriously making a big deal about boys being boys. Relax yourself, calm down. And so, you know, victims would go to law enforcement and they would be facing rape threats, the publication of their nude photos without consent doxing, you know, their home address and phone numbers, often with like fake ads that they were interested in sex. And they go to law enforcement, state, local, even feds. And they were told, there's nothing we can do. This is just mischief online. It's no big deal. Turn your computer off. It will drop down in a search of your name eventually. Or some folks were told, like, go buy a gun. It's in Florida. So no, super shocked. But it's devastating when we know that there are these social attitudes about gendered harms that absolutely replicated the responses to cyber harassment, mean just the way that we responded to um, workplace harassment. You know, boys will be boys. It's just a perk of the workplace. It's no big deal. Suck it up. It's your choice. You work or you don't work, but it's up to you. So we once had those same attitudes in the 70s about workplace sexual harassment and domestic violence. You know, we said it was a private matter that families had their own rules. I was told the same thing about, you know, the net. Cyberspace has its its own place with its own rules. And if we bring law to bear, we will break it. To me, it was like we were telling the same social attitudes, same stories that we once said about domestic violence and sexual harassment in the workplace. We overcame those. We realized that, you know, you want to have an equal opportunity in life. You got to be able to work free from abuse, from sexual harassment in the workplace. And you wanna, you know, make something of your life opportunities, you have to be able to go home and not fear being, you know, beaten and raped. And so online, so important to all of our life opportunities are using these tools, whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, our cell phones are with us wherever we go. And so the idea that we would turn them off and tell victims, just go offline, seemed to me to be absurd. Well, you don't have to take that job with that person. It's the same crucial life opportunities. You know, your cell phone, for a lot of people, that is their workplace. To me, it was the same fallacies that were clouding our thinking about the workplace and the same social attitudes. We had a different spin on it now because, and especially like the free speech angle, you know, the idea that we would bring law to bear was like, oh, my God, you're the enemy Like you want, Someone said to me, this is early in my work on this, and someone I adore, a colleague, a free speech colleague, said, you want to jail communists, don't you? And I was like, absolutely not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it seems like our attitudes have changed a lot. Uh, So as you've been studying this over the past decade or so, I mean, do you have a theory as to why online harassment is so gendered, why women have become so vulnerable to it online in particular? Is there something about the internet ecosystem that kind of feeds that?
2: I think it's a couple of things coming together you know, we have these social attitudes and pathologies offline. So of course they're with all of us and we mask them pretty well at work because, because it's costly now, you know, like if you, you know, work, we can mask it because we know you could get fired. You could get a, you know, demotion, you know, it's risky to do at work, at least in part and not all workplaces, but, but in a lot of workplaces, it's the norms have changed and the laws changed, but it, it still exists in us. Unfortunately, I think what, online life has allowed is because you feel it's called deindividuation. You feel that you're not accountable. You feel anonymous. You can take out your grievances and your feelings and so sort of hatred and bigotry and just externalize it. And it's cheap and easy to do. Think how costless it is to put up someone's home address. Uh, if you've done a pretty good job now of masking yourself, like back then, it was harder to trace people. Now it's like online behavior, advertising. I don't know how people mask themselves at all, but if you're smart enough, you use Tor. you know, it's pretty easy. And then you put up someone's home address and say they're interested in sex. Someone shares a nude photo and you want to mock and shame them, embarrass them. You post their nude photo on Twitter, or you send it to their parents, their friends. It's pretty low cost. And especially because the social attitudes aren't yet you know, we don't have perfection in terms of the changing social attitudes. And so you usually get away with it. Unfortunately, I think it it's this combination of you can hide yourself. You may, it may exist and live in us. It definitely does because I wish I have to say we've seen a lot of change in wonderful ways in the law, in social attitudes, in companies and law enforcement. But unfortunately, you know, after the you know, with the run up to the 2016 election and with basically a leader who gives permission structure to target people and harass them and also bigotry. We've seen a doubling down, I think, of mainstreaming of hate in ways that we hadn't seen before. I really thought we were doing much better. And then the election hits the kind of permission that was given to go after Julia Yaffe, after she writes the story about Mel- Melania Trump and cut and pasting her face into a you know an oven on Twitter. And, and all of us on the ADL task force, it happened to all of us once it was announced that we were working on the issue. And it was Jew, bitch, die, and I'm going to rape you, like was in my inbox. And I'm just an academic. And I think because it's cheap and easy, and we know that, in particular, women and sexual minorities and non-whites are vulnerable in this way. And when you make a rape threat to a woman... Or to a gay man, the threat of anal rape, it's scary. It, it reflects real life in that way and social attitudes that exist. And sadly, they're now, we see them on full display
0: online. You mentioned earlier that, you know, there seems to be this pattern with a lot of these harassment stories where the victim goes to the police and the police has no idea what to do. What do you think law enforcement should be doing here? What is their role exactly? And have they gotten better at dealing with these reports?
2: We, we definitely have come a long way in terms of educating law enforcement. So I worked with, when she was the AG, Kamala Harris, on coming up with programs to educate law enforcement on, this, on peace officers in California, on the laws they had on the books that they could use right now. And we created uh, her office, and with the help of an, a number of us who are working on the Cyber Exploitation Task Force, creating a website that would educate law enforcement about the tools that they had at hand and the laws they had that they could enforce. And we've seen work, the FBI you know, deploying resources to train local and state law enforcement on how to approach investigations involving online abuse. You know, going to an online service provider, getting a warrant, then going to the ISP with the IP address or, or identifying information. You know, that, that's been a process. It's, it's certainly not perfect. I can't tell you the number of emails I get to this day from victims of non-consensual pornography, of, hara- of you know harassment and abuse that say no one's doing anything and please help me. I now have lawyers I can connect them with and pro bono practices like the Cyber Civil Rights Legal Project, just incredible lawyers at k and Gates who do pro bono work on behalf of non-consensual pornography victims. And we do, we are seeing cases brought, being brought, we are seeing convictions with invasions of sexual privacy and harassment. So We shouldn't give up on the project because we just need more education and resources and training for law enforcement on the ways in which they do investigations involving and finding perpetrators. Because that's first things first, is to find folks.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Daniel Citrin.
1: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank member FDIC or as a statement credit, terms and more at applecard.com.
0: I wanted to ask a bit about how you kind of research harassment campaigns, you know, when an, an online mob kind of floods someone. So are you are you just following the threads of attack and kind of labeling and quantifying them? How exactly do you try to trace? That's how I got
2: drawn in, with the sort of cyber mob attacks against female law students on the website autoadmit and the cyber mob attack against Kathy Sierra. She's a program, you know, software programmer who was mobbed on her blog and then two other websites that were sort of run by folks that had written the Train manifesto, so like technologists. And you watch it unfold on auto-admit with threads organized by women's names. And what would follow was truly a snowballing of the most horrific, vile rape threats, fan- sexual fantasies, what she was wearing at the gym, where she lives, you know, like under p- women's names. You saw the mob You saw it unfold in the threads. Same with Kathy Sierra. So all of the comments on her blog, her blog was flooded with like a photo, a, do, a photo of her beautiful blonde, you know, hair and her face with like underwear choking her. You know, someone had doctored a photograph and someone had taken a photograph of Kathy's hair and put a noose beside her neck. And then you saw on these two websites, you just had to follow the posts. It wasn't even that complicated. Like the research wasn't even that deep in the sense of I didn't know who the folks were. People wrote under persistent pseudonyms. And so you saw like um, Hitler would write on auto admit constantly about, you know, same women and there would be a daily thread and the same people would be discussing it and would come up in searches of these folks names. And so what really drew me to this entire project was the story of the cyber mob and the way in which people escalated and became more extreme As they watched other people become more extreme and you watched it unfold in the threads that were daily or sometimes a few times daily on message boards and then on on blogs and websites and in the comments section. And so that's really how I sort of framed all of this. And the reason why I thought of it was a civil rights problem is because, you know, you think of and of course, it's so different from the Klan and lynching mobs. But behind the veil of anonymity, people do and say things they would never, I'm sure, do or say in person. I mean, the most descriptive, graphic, sexually demeaning accusations people had herpes and AIDS and like the kind of gang rape scenarios they envisioned. Can you imagine like they wouldn't say that face to face, but they had the veil of anonymity. They wrote behind crazy screen names and got fixated on various women. And you could see almost like a video game. You know what I'm saying? Like people would, I rape her this way. This is how I do it doggy style. It would be responsive to one another. You're right, it was very much watching and documenting, taking screenshots, printing out pages. I can't tell you the for the auto admit case, I had like so many printouts in my house of, you know, what the women face and two of the women two Yale law students, female law students sued 39 posters. And so you had the, you of course, had the documentation of the lawsuit, you had the complaint. And I interviewed more than 60 people, um, uh, harassment victims. And for my recent work on sexual privacy, I've, I've done about 10 interviews and developing and doing more because you know when you tell people stories i'm not a social scientist i'm not I've, but i am telling people's experiences it's it helps us really appreciate all of the fullness of the harm in ways that you can't really replicate i think telling their stories is such a crucial part of you know attesting to what happened having us really feel it viscerally and experiencing it with them and then we can appreciate the sort of theoretical implications and policy implications of all of this
0: Yeah, just on a a human level, does this ever kind of take a toll on you waiting through all this really violent, misogynistic content? Like, I can't imagine doing this day to day.
2: You know, how I always sort of viewed it was, like, whatever I was experienced was nothing compared to the people I interviewed. And then you do get targeted, I have to say, like Gamergate, my book came out just as Gamergate was picking up steam. So the attacks on Zoe Quinn, and Brianna Wu, and these are all people I now know kind of well, like having interviewed them, talked to them, and given talks with them, like Brianna Wu and I presented together. Once you get outed as like what they call the social justice warrior, this is in 2014 when my book comes out, I got doxed. you know, my kids were flipped out, there's my cell phone number, my home address. You know, your inbox is full of really unlovely things. My family sometimes questioned me, like, you sure you want to do this? I was like, guys, I've been doing this for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I understood their anxiety, of course. And then I just always said, think about Brianna. Think about, you know, all the people, Holly, think about all the people I'm writing about and just what that is like. So I've sort of tried to keep it in perspective
0: Wow, that sounds awful. Um, I mean, just based on your own experiences and the woman you've interviewed, what is the psychological impact it has on its victims? I mean, are you constantly looking over your shoulder or what What do you, what do happens?
2: I would say it's totalizing. Like you uh, interviewed um, a several, you know, the folks would say the same thing. I always think that both the abuse is a playbook and the experience is a playbook in the sense of like, you talk to victims and they wake up in the middle of the night and they Google their name because what's next? And they're terrified and they feel like everyone knows who they are. They've seen their naked bodies. Like someone planted at a hotel, a camera must have been an employee. So we think and filmed this woman while she was showering and the person who spied on her and took the video, sent it to her law school classmates and put it up on Pornhub along with her name and her home address. Like she got these bizarre phone calls from strangers who said, you're on Pornhub, I saw you taking a shower. And so that's how she figures out how to Google herself. He then sends it to her nearly her entire law school class because he finds them on LinkedIn. I mean, I'm assuming it's a he, so I'm just going to say they because we don't know who it is yet. And then the person got in touch with her to say, I demand more nude photos of you or I'm going to post them again because Pornhub would take it down and then inevitably the person would put it back up. And it was like a -a whack-a-mole. The victim could never outrun the person. And then not just Pornhub, but RedTube, you know, all these porn sites all over the place along with her name. She refused. She called me and said, what do I do? And I was like, you're not sent. That's extortion. It occupies so much space in your head because not only are you know somebody is fixate on you and has your nude photo and is sharing it, but is tormenting you and keeps going. And so then you worry that everyone who sees you on the street at the gym is staring at you a little too long, what if they've seen it, the photo? And it's just, you would think it's in the bathroom, she's undressing, she's showering. I've seen when your classmates view you in that way, that state of vulnerability, and your uh, masturbation material on Pornhub, it is devastating. And it takes a really long time to kind of work through a feeling of forgiveness. At least this one victim told me like, it, you know, I've been talking to her now for a year and a half, two years, and it's taken a long time to feel like she feels bad for the person versus feeling so angry and obsessed and looking online every second. And she's a lawyer with a very serious, wonderful job and incredibly smart. And, you know, if anyone's kind of equipped to deal with this stuff, you would think it's someone who's a lawyer and who gets the legal implications and she's trying to work with law enforcement. But it still feels so out of control and terrifying that there are thousands of eyes on your body and you didn't give permission.
0: Okay, we're going to take another quick break and then we'll continue our conversation with Daniel Citron.
3: this podcast is brought to you by progressive insurance let's face it sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot but then again sometimes multitasking is easy like quoting with progressive insurance they do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you even if it's not with them Give their nifty comparison tool a try, and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies, all lined up and ready to compare, so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
0: I'm wondering, you, you've sort of started studying deepfakes now, and I'm wondering if you see these kind of stories replicating with this technology. Do you think we're going to be seeing a lot of the same case studies that you've been seeing in the past?
2: I have been interviewing and talking to Rana Ayub, who's a journalist in India, about, this was April of last year, a video was essentially shared with over half the ones in India of her engaged in a sex act. And she's this beautiful woman with big brown eyes. And it's her, like she showed me the video, it is distinctly her. It's a deep fake of her engaged in a sex act. And like with it goes viral in 48 hours. She's a very outspoken voice on government corruption and the Hindu nationalist government. And so it was shared on WhatsApp. Wildfire, 48 hours, then embedded in her Twitter feed, her Facebook, you know, her Facebook profile in her inbox, rape and death threats, fake ads that said she was available for sex. And here's her parents' home address. She was living with her parents. She's young and devastating. She wouldn't go outside. She was terrified. She couldn't eat or sleep. And it's been a year. So she is finally sort of feeling brave enough. She's so brave, period, to talk about it publicly. But it took a really long time for her even to feel safe traveling. She gives talks for her work. You know, the UN Council on Human Rights, about like a week after this started happening, issued a statement saying they were worried about her safety because of the doxing, because, you know, she's a well-known female journalist in India. And, you know, she was terrified to leave her house. And to this day, she worries, you know, someone's going to take a picture and make a better deepfake sex video. I think we're only going to see this problem escalate. Deepfake technology, its it diffused so quickly. If you go on YouTube, you'll see all these tutorials about how to make fake videos. You just can make them on your desktop. And now it requires fewer photos to make wholesale out of wholesale cloth, digital cloth, a, a porn video from scratch. You know, we can easily insert faces into porn videos. It's kind of that's where it starts on the subreddit. The tutorials are really easy to find. And the technology increasingly easy to use.
0: Yeah. So it seems like the technology is getting easier to use, and it's becoming more sophisticated. I mean, is there any way we can prepare for this? I mean, in some ways, it just feels like we're waiting for something awful to happen and to keep happening before we really know the nature of the problem. Is that frustrating? Or do you think there are ways we can kind of preempt this wave?
2: There isn't a silver bullet. I always feel like I have to premise this by saying, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a law professor, but I wish that there were legal tools that I'll say, okay, we can deal with this. Law is a pretty modest role. Now I'm working, Marianne Franks and I are working with folks on the Hill because we just have a huge gap in the law and working on a sort of what we're calling digital forgery or impersonations that cause harm, significant harm, and criminalizing the practice, the creation side, as well as the distribution side with, you know, making sure there is sort of knowledge that the person knows it's a fake and isn't just distributing a video person thinks is real. That's a harmful video. That's not parody. That's not satire. But law, you know, is going to be modest. The platforms have a role to play. We're in the midst of a very important public conversation about their responsibility, and I think we should change the current shield from legal responsibility that they currently enjoy. It's pretty broad, but we've got to be really careful on how we fix Section 230. So Ben Wittes and I have sort of offered proposals that would basically condition the immunity on reasonable content moderation practices in the face of illegality. I don't think we should take away the immunity, but we've got to be careful. And you know, of course, education to each and every one of us, including journalists, so they don't amplify deepfakes and I know the Wall Street Journal has gotten some training on deepfakes. I work on a presidential campaign and the idea of training the sort of inside of the campaign about deepfakes is an important priority and getting other campaigns to think about it cuz my deepest worry and it was true Bobby Chesney my co-author and I we write about deepfakes together are we were so worried before 2018 and I think we're even more worried for 2020 because the technology is soon like within 3 to 6 months it's gonna be impossible wow. as a technical matter telling the difference between what's fake and real. And so it, the idea of detection is is really, we're in an arms race. The creators, the generators of fakes are gonna be beating the detectors. I mean, they're wonderful, brilliant technologists like Hani Fareed who are working on verification approaches and detection approaches. But you know, you talk to technologists and we're not there yet. There isn't a silver bullet in terms of detection and these tools are just getting more sophisticated and it requires time to debunk them and sometimes we don't remotely have time the night before an election the deep fake showing the you know major candidate gravely sick the deep fake the night before the IPO or the announcement of a release of a major drug and the you know the fake video showing the company CEO confessing that the drug causes cancer my worry is that given how time sensitive it is that A, it's hard to debunk before they're real serious harms. And B, my worry too, is that the confirmation bias problem, that like if videos are negative and novel, we're really attracted to them, we're going to spread them. And if they confirm our beliefs, we're going to believe them. And no matter how much you debunk a lie, if it confirms your viewpoints, and especially because it's video and audio, it's visceral, then it becomes embedded in our memories. And that's really hard to shake. I am more worried than I'm confident that we're, going to deal with it in ways that are optimal, but I'm encouraged by all sorts of efforts by technologists, by lawmakers, advocacy groups, companies. I work really closely with a few tech platforms, not, I don't get paid for my work. It's the whole idea is I'm just a, you know, sounding board, but I'm encouraged by the thinking, at least sense of internal responsibility. They're not perfect. My golly, no, but I'm at least encouraged by some steps to address And think about it. What do we do?
0: So as we head into this election, what should people be looking out for when they look at images or video? I mean, are there any telltale signs that we have right now that something's a deep fake or will it be pretty much impossible?
2: I think by by the time 2020 rolls around, it might be impossible even for a technologist to detect the fakery. And so I think when we see something that's negative, outrageous, it's timed right before important decision points. We've got to ask ourselves, is this real? And wait before we share, you know what I mean? And like and link, share. What makes a deep fake go viral is us. Each and every one of us, our own human frailties, we're attracted to the negative and novel. We spread fake news 10 times faster than we're gonna fake, you know, spread accurate stories. We believe, you know, stories that confirm our viewpoints. And when it's audio and video, we have a visceral reaction to it. We've gotta be mindful of all those things, our own human frailties. We are the bug in the code we spread it. Right. And, and social media companies just magnify, you know, they just supercharge our worst tendencies. That's their business model, right? <laughs> Absolutely. They make money as commissioner Chopra said in his dissenting opinion in the Facebook case, like they feed on and exploit our weaknesses. So we've got to catch ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Like we're, we are we are both the problem and the solution, am I confident that we're going to overcome our human frailties? I'd like us to try.
0: I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for coming on.
2: It is such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
0: All right, we're going to take one quick final break and then Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. Okay, now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me now is my colleague Shannon Paulus. We'll be hosting the show next week. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Aaron. So my tab for this week is a Vice article titled, This Company Thinks It Can Solve Diversity with 100,000 Fake AI Faces. Uh, It's a piece about this company that makes stock images, and the company recently used an AI algorithm to generate portraits of people who don't exist. So now it has this database of 100,000 fake faces that it's offering up as stock imagery, and it's been advertised as a way to produce (coughs) infinite, diversity, I suppose, because a lot of these fake people are fake people of color. And Vice notes that this seems to be a way for companies to have a semblance of diversity without actually having to pay money to models from underrepresented populations. And I just thought this was peak Silicon Valley. um, (laughs) There's just a certain amount of hubris you have to have to think you can solve diversity issues with uh, an algorithm like this. And I I sort of worry that companies will eventually think that it's easier just to build a a fancy algorithm than to just hire more people of color.
4: It seems so odd because people of color are they exist and they mm-hmm. are happy to do jobs in exchange for money, just like anybody else who <laughs> right. posts for a stock photo. Like, what a weird problem to decide that you need AI technology for.
0: Yeah, exactly. It just seems like you can just, they think that you can just throw a lot of money at it and in the long run, you don't have to pay the actual people that you're trying to represent. Yeah, it just seems like it, it speaks to the ethos of uh, big tech and the tech industry in general.
4: Right. Like someone at the stock photo company, I can just imagine, brings up the fact that they don't have enough people of color in their photos. And they're just like, how can we fix this as quickly as possible? (laughs) Instead of thinking through like the larger implications of of why they don't.
0: Right. It kind of reminds me last year when we had that big spate of sexual harassment cases in Silicon Valley. And you heard a lot of people at these big companies saying, oh, we're going to hack sexual harassment. and like. We're just gonna find a big like moonshot project to uh, fund and, and solve this, which uh, seems like it's it's again that same kind of thinking that you can just find some sort of expensive tech solution for a problem that will probably take just a lot of work.
4: It's like you can apply the faster, better, cheaper mentality to these social issues when really what you need is like, I mean, probably it sounds like executives at this company like sitting in a room doing some emotional work and stuff. <laughs> And then, and then taking steps based on that.
0: Okay. Uh, so what's your tab for this week?
4: My tab is I've been staring at photos of Antarctica online all day. <laughs> Specifically, there are some good ones from the Atlantic and National Geographic. I'm doing this because I'm working on a story about how Airbnb is sending five volunteers to Antarctica in December for 10 days to look for signs of microplastics. And I think it's kind of a silly idea. That is real research that needs to be done going to Antarctica and for looking, looking for signs of microplastics. But there are just so many other ways that Airbnb <laughs> can contribute to science versus like sending people who apply through Airbnb to go on this hugely carbon costly trip and, you know, Maybe not really know what they're doing and be able to have them post all these Instagram pictures to make Airbnb look really good. It just seems like a massive stunt. But one side effect of working on this is like Antarctica is really, really beautiful. It's just been fun to kind of space out a little bit and take in the imagery. And it kind of made me wonder part of the purpose of this Airbnb trip, part of the alleged and I guess real purpose is to send these folks there so that they can come back And then be like ambassadors for Antarctica and ambassadors for the fact that people are using a ton of plastic and traveling a ton and killing the planet and doing all those things that like Airbnb itself contributes to. And we have this kind of idea that we need to go to a place and like get our footprints all over it and massive ecosystems in order to really understand it. I love nature. I get that visiting places is really cool. I'm not going to lie, if I had $25,000, I would go visit Antarctica as well. That's how much it costs <laughs> for a seven-day tour. Oh, wow. Um, but it also really made me think about like how I don't really take in these far-fung places in a way that like technology allows me to.
0: Wait, why exactly does Airbnb think it should move into this space? Or is it – did they try to tie it to their core business? Or is it just like something they're doing – great question
4: <laughs> <laughs> the obvious answer is pr um mm-hmm. it's this airbnb sabbatical thing they did one um over the summer where people went to a small town in italy and tried to help revive it it's kind of like i don't know if when you were in high school like if any of your friends if any of like your rich friends went to other countries to like volunteer and help build houses and mm. like have something fancy to put on their college applications. But this is what this whole enterprise sounds like to me. And it's like, yeah, are you doing a little good while you're there? Maybe is this like the most productive way for us to be living our lives? Maybe not.
0: It kind of reminds me of how some some of these private companies are like trying to find people to, to go to space. Like they're just kind of like setting up contests for people to eventually go to Mars or something. Which I, I guess the calculus is slightly different there, but it, it seems like this kind of the stunt of uh, sending people to remote places for ostensibly scientific and I guess in this case uh, conservational purposes is uh, somehow alluring to a big big tech.
4: It feels so similar, (laughs) and (laughs) they all have this theme of, like, you can further science and human knowledge by going there yourself, not by, like, volunteering to do scut work in a lab, cleaning out beakers, but by going on this big adventure. Like, that's how you'll save the planet. It's, like, such an American idea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you found anyone who's, like, applying, or are you going to apply?
4: Oh, that's a great question. I think my piece is going to be critical, so I don't know that they would select me to go on the trip.
0: <laughs> Maybe they'll give it to you just to prove you wrong, you know? <laughs>
4: <laughs> that sounds like the start of, like, a rom-com or something, <laughs> except, to, like, I'm in the rom-com with Airbnb.
0: All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron T. Mac. Thanks again to our guest, Danielle Citrin. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If then, it's a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com futurenews future news. Our producer is Justin D. Wright. Thanks also to Rosemary Belson, who engineered for us in D.C. We'll see you next week.
1: Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.